Welcome back to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we discuss the relationships between human and plant communities, traditional and contemporary. Today's conversation is with Julie Martin, primitive skills practitioner. Julie teaches ancestral skills ranging from fire starting to herbal medicine at Practical Primitive, a school in Great Meadows, New Jersey, run by Julie and her husband, Eddie Starnader. It's a fantastic place to go for workshops in a vast array of different skills. I hope you enjoy today's conversation immersing in the forgotten fundamentals of human survival. Julie and I start the conversation by talking about processing acorns for food, a skill that she helped me with quite a lot. We also discuss fire and its elemental place in human life, communicating with plants, building community and nature connection through primitive skills, and a whole lot more. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. We started Wild Ridge to offer a toolkit for the restoration of native plant communities, including a native plant nursery, botanical surveys, and stewardship planning, as well as classes, hikes, presentations, and publications. Check us out online at wildridgeplants.com. Julie and Eddie have a number of great books and DVDs, including Acorn, Recipes for the Forgotten Food, mentioned in the podcast. Check out practicalprimitive.com for books, DVDs, and their workshop offerings. If you're looking for a holiday gift for a kid, take a look at my book, The Puddle Garden. It's an illustrated children's story about native plants and wildlife, an early start on the idea of habitat restoration, featuring an adorable young bear, as well as cardinal flower, hummingbird, and many others. You can find it online at wildridgeplants.com or on thepuddlegarden.com. Thanks for all the feedback, questions, and comments, and for the iTunes ratings, too. Please keep it coming and give me a holler at jared at wildridgeplants.com with questions, comments, suggestions for upcoming guests, and just to chat. Today's theme music was a first sketch of a piece called Fishhawk. I'll probably take the bones of it and make it into a real song someday. Meanwhile, it's fun to pull together a few instruments and make a quick recording. Thanks for listening. We've been processing a lot of acorns this fall. Oh, yeah. And that's really thanks to you guys (laughs) because in the past we had tried processing acorns Mm -hmm. and we're always using the hot leach method. Oh, never do And what we ended up with was like a pot of nasty blackened (laughs) acorn halves. I mean, we were probably doing multiple things wrong, right. but it was just fixing the tannins in there. Yeah. And we look at it and it looks so unappealing and, you know, ha- maybe half-heartedly make some kind of gruel out of it. I was like, this is terrible. And then I remember coming over here, maybe spending all of two or so minutes talking with you about acorns. You kind of laid it out. Maybe you had a mason jar lying around or something, or you were doing some kind of processing. Maybe mm-hmm. not. And I'm like, oh, that's really <laughs> straightforward and easy. And I also bought your book, uh, Recipes for Acorns. And between that two minutes or so here, just incidentally at like one of your solstice parties or something, mm-hmm. and the book, all of a sudden we've been making all this stuff out of acorn for the past couple of years. Oh, that's great. It's been really great. And this year, we even had people over to come process with us <gasps> and learn An the process. Party. Yeah, three different, you know, groups of friends, family. So we have a pretty decent amount. And it's also just really fun. It's felt so right to hang out and have this sort of reason to hang out and be doing this skill. And you chat and then, you know, shuffle the acorns around mm-hmm. and pass the um, nutcracker. So thank you. Our and pleasure. Acorns play a role in your personal story in coming around to where you are now doing practical primitive and so on. I was wondering if you'd be game to start there and tell me a little bit about where you first encountered processing of acorns and um, food made out of acorns. And Well, when I was a kid, um, when I was a kid, we, uh, I grew up on a farm in southern Ontario and uh, we spent a lot of time outside. And there was all kinds of things that, you know, all the different nuts and stuff like that we would 
you know, just kind of pick up and eat. And we ate beech nuts and we ate chestnuts and, and we'd go and harvest them and put them on the windowsill and then the mouse would come up and steal them all. <laughs> um, but my first real introduction to uh, acorn was at um, the first class that I went to with uh, where I started learning about primitive skills. And I had, um, it was actually Eddie who did the primitive cooking lecture. And he had this, it was like an an acorn bread that um, we all got to taste these little samples of. And I tasted this, or there was acorn pancake, kind of like an ash cake kind of a thing. And um, I tasted this and I was like, this is delicious. What, what is this? And so I went up afterwards and I asked him, like, this isn't just pancake. What is this? And he's, oh, well, there's just a little bit of acorn flour in there. And I was like, it made it really, really good. And he's like, yeah, well, you know, acorns are really good food. <laughs> and so then um, I, uh, that next fall, like that was in April, I guess. And then in the fall, I started picking up acorns and trying to do things with them. And this was... <sighs> This was in the days, early internet days. It wasn't like today where you could go online and find 187 different people telling you 187 different ways to process acorn. There wasn't really any information on it except that it could be done. So um, I picked up acorns and I tasted them and I tried them and it didn't work. And it was very bad. (laughs) And and, um, then I... uh, the following year, uh, Eddie introduced me to the book, uh, It Will Live Forever by Julia Parker. And that really opened my eyes. And it's a fascinating book. And it's just this amazing story of this entire culture whose, whose lives revolved around acorn. Um, acorn was their staple food source. And they treated it the same way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was just really fascinating. And so that gave me a huge respect for acorn and, and um, insight, in a better insight into processing. Then the first time I tried processing it that way, I made another mistake where we used stone on stone to process the acorns with. And so we got, uh, they were crunchy (laughs) and you kind of had to filter it through your teeth to not crack a tooth on some of the stone chips because you you don't ever want to do stone on stone. We were grinding the acorns using stone on stone. Um, And so, you know, it was a long process. I made all the same mistakes that everybody else out there makes. And, uh, but once I, but all through that time, it, built my respect for this amazing food because even though there were little bits of rock and little bits of stone dust and I I was like oh well you know we're just getting some extra minerals in there um it was really good yeah and you know and then we found in this little Korean store in Kentucky we found acorn starch um commercially and I was like, hey, I didn't didn't know this would this you know we could get this, but there were the, it was all in Korean, but the little acorns oh. were on the package, mm-hmm. so we tried that, and I don't know, it was just a whole uh, a real gradual process, and um, did a lot of pounding acorn in the traditional method with a mortar and pestle, build up the forearms. You learn why when you're doing something like that. That's so difficult and repetitive and boring you really learn the importance of work songs uh-huh. um it was re- i just found myself i was just by myself I, you know i was sitting there with the mortar and pestle we had a big log that we had coal burned out uh, an indentation and had the rock and was just sitting there pounding and pounding and pounding and i just found myself just sort of humming to myself and just sort of making up music just to pass the time and i was like oh this is how work songs started and um, so one day I would really, really like to go out to Yosemite and see the, um, the, the rock mesas where they have all the indentations yeah. that they used there. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. But now, I mean, now we make all kinds of things with acorn. We pick up, 
you know, 50 pound sacks of acorn every year and we've got it all quite automated down. We have the world's best, we have the nut wizard to pick them up with, yep. the world's best nut cracker to crack them with, the Vitamix to process them with. And so we can make acorn flour super fast now. Can you give me just a real quick snapshot of the, the Julie Martin method? How you guys are processing acorns now? Well, we um, we uh, at Thanksgiving we go down to Texas. We're heading off there again this year, and there is a park near the t- in the town near where Eddie's dad lives that has the biggest freaking acorns you've ever seen. I always see them in a <laughs> basket here on the shelf, and I was like, Nah. <laughs> Those are not real. So, so we don't even waste our time picking up acorns here because we just yeah. go down to Texas and pick up these I'm acorns. Pretty envious of the those size acorns. of golf balls. They're ridiculous. Yes, yeah, they're insane. You're not exaggerating by no. saying they're the size of golf balls. No. I mean, the acorn caps. Yeah. Would make like a hat for a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and some years they're bigger, and some years they're smaller. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the year. But, uh, and those are bur oaks? Bur oak okay, and overcup oak uh, okay. are the two kinds of trees mm-hmm. that are in this park. And it's just in this one park in Texas. I don't know. If, and it's just if... everything's bigger in Texas? Or... <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> What's the deal? I don't know if there's something special about this park or if mo- like all bur oak and overcup oaks in Texas are this size. Yeah. Um, but they're the biggest acorns I've ever seen. So that's where we gather all our acorns. We have our little nut wizard, which is is sort of like a vacuum cleaner, sort of like the way they pick up golf balls on a golf course, but it's on a stick and you do that for acorns, so you roll them up so we can pick up a five-gallon bucket of acorns in a few minutes, in 10 minutes or so. And then we have um, the, uh, and then we'll usually put them in the freezer. And because we process all of our if we dry our acorns, we dry them with the shells off. We always take everything out of the shell before we dry it. We had one year where we used to dry them, as conventional wisdom says, to uh, dry them in the shell. But then we had one year where we lost over half of our acorn crop to um, mildew and to um, worms, like to mealworms and to acorn weevils. And so, like, we just lost all of our crop, and they all started sprouting all at once um, while they were drying. And so we were just like, you know what? Forget this. This is just ridiculous. The amount of nutrition that you lose by having taken them out of the shell is so mm-hmm. minuscule that we don't even worry about it. So we um, we either will uh, shell them and process them, shell them and dry them, or just throw them into the freezer. And um, we still, have, we've probably got 200 pounds of acorns in the freezer between here and in Texas. Awesome. And then when we're ready to process them, we have, uh, we got something for, uh, called the world's best nutcracker from Dave Built. And that's literally what it's called, yeah. is the world's best nutcracker. And it's fantastic. It just, it's, we can just pour the acorns in the top and then there's a crank that you turn and it just cracks all of the, the nuts and shoots them out the bottom. And so we can go through, uh, you know, uh, like an onion sack, a big 50-pound onion sack of acorns. We can crack them all in maybe half an hour. And then we, uh, from there, then it becomes time to grind them down. So we will, usually we will take, uh, we have big glass pickle jars, and we'll um, put them in the, pickle jars the gallon pickle jars with water to soften them and make sure that they're soft and pliable and then we'll put them in either the food processor we used to use a food processor but then we got given a Vitamix and that's fantastic (laughs) and so then we'll put them in the Vitamix and it just grinds them up like crazy like super great and then then we leach them and we always do the cold water leaching method and um, it's a it's really simple. I mean, you just put the, they just go back into the the gallon jar, um, about filled about a third of the way up with the acorn flour, and then the rest with water. And you stir it up, and then you just let it sit. And once everything is dropped down to the bottom, then you pour the water off the top, add more water, do that again. You do that until when you taste it, it the tannins are all gone, or at least palatable for you. 
Um, and then we'll uh, dry them out and put them back into the Vitamix to take it down to a nice actual flower size. Because, because um, particle size is everything when it comes to processing acorns. The smaller the particle size, the better and faster it will leach. And so you want to make sure we bring it down to sort of a cornmeal size, acorn, or sorry, um, coffee ground to cornmeal size to leach. And then we'll, after the, after it's finished leaching, then we'll put it back in and bring it down to flower size. Yeah. So. So in the water, the tannins are precipitating out of the acorn mm-hmm. and into the water. Yep. And you're seeing, sort of seeing the water turn, not coffee dark, but just dark. Like iced tea. And pouring it off. Mm-hmm. And then it'll be clear, and or you'll you'll see all the acorns sort of settle out of solution, mm-hmm. and then the water get dark again. And it's easy. It's really all you easy. have to do is pour off some water yeah. for a couple of days. Yeah. And then and then you've got it. Yeah. So it takes five minutes a day for a couple of days. Yeah. 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 So and it, what's really fascinating was the year that I realized, hey, um, we process acorn and we process clay almost exactly the same yeah <laughs> and it's just another one of those examples of the way one skill teaches you another skill that's interesting and uh that there's examples of that all through the the primitive skills one skill teaches you another skill because yeah. you're separating the clay out in a container mm-hmm. using water mm-hmm. yeah. and whatever settles yeah yeah that's yeah. pretty great it's sort of similar to how you said the pounding the acorns brought on the work songs. Work songs, yeah. All those cultures are kind of intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess if you'll briefly fast forward me to the present moment, the same Eddie who made you those acorn pancakes, mm-hmm. you guys are now married. Yes. And you have practical primitive together. Yes. Give me the real quick description of practical primitive and what kind of underlies what you guys do because I think what you do here it has a personal character and then there's also some really um, distinctive things about what's going on behind the scenes in terms of how you teach and what kind of information you impart to provide a context for the skills Mm -hmm. I love coming here for classes so (laughs) give me the really quick description so people know where you're coming from and where tasting that first acorn pancake took you to? <laughs> well, uh, we started Practical Primitive in 2007, so we've been going full-time for 12 years. This is what we do full-time, 365 days a year. We run small group work, small group weekend workshops for adults in all sorts of primitive skills, traditional skills, bushcraft, wilderness survival, uh, self-reliance, emergency preparedness. Basically, um, if, uh, if it was common knowledge between 4 million and 40 years ago, that's right. what we teach, <laughs> right? How to have fun with, how does Eddie say it? He says, how to have fun with sticks, rocks, dirt, plants, and animal parts. And that's what we do. And I feel like, I feel like your name is really apt because mm-hmm. you often take a very pragmatic approach mm-hmm. to the skills. And there's definitely a mix of, like, this is how it might have been done originally by... Uh, you know, let's just say some culture, some 40,000 years ago. And this is how it translates to our modern life ways and some of the tools and technologies that we have available. Right. And I think that mix is eminently practical. It's not ideological. It's not really purist. It's sort of like, how can we bring these things forward? Right. Well, we're not archaeologists. We're not anthropologists. We don't, we're not um, trying to create uh you know, accurate representations for museums or anything like that. What we do is we go, okay, these are these are the skills, and a hundred. They didn't do skills. They didn't necessarily do skills forty thousand years ago the same way they did them a hundred thousand years ago, and they didn't do them fifteen thousand years ago the same way they did them forty thousand yeah. years ago. So why should we stop using the most advanced technology? That's how things have always progressed. And it was, you know, as um, a a friend of Eddie's uh, used to say, um, he was like, if we'd had it, we'd have used it, right? Right. So we use our, our, our sort of philosophy is whatever is the way that works for you every time, 
that's the right way to do it. So if you like to flint nap with traditional tools with hammer stones and antler billets and wooden billets and using um, using only uh, local locally sourced rock and that's what gives you joy in the skill, then great, fantastic. If what if that frustrates you and you want to use nice easy rock from Davis Creek in California, uh, or from Bend in Bend, Oregon, you know, some obsidian or dacite, and that's what gives you joy. That's great. If you like to use, um, if you like to use hammerstones on modern glass, that's great. Uh, if you like to use copper tools on traditional materials, that's great. Whatever it is that gives you joy and gets you doing these skills and enjoying them and working with them and and perfecting them and taking them forward, that's the right way to do it. So you grew up on a farm mm -hmm. in Ontario, and how did that early, I'm assuming, sort of country rural experience inform your interest now? And you know, was there was there a break in there somewhere where oh, you yeah. kind of coming back <laughs> to primitive skill? I'm 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 curious for the story because I I see you both immersed in these skills, but also with this interesting flexibility and with a background that maybe led you towards some of them, but. Well, I start. Does, yeah, I grew up go? on a farm, and both my parents were born Old Order Mennonites, so horse and buggy Mennonites. So they both grew up in worlds where modern technology was shunned, and that uh, they grew up in worlds, you know, without electricity and without running water, and where they had the big gardens and they sourced all their own food and all of that sort of thing. So um, it was my on both sides. It was my grandparents who left the old order, um, but it still very much informed my parents' lives. And it still, uh, a generation later, informed my life. We still, we lived on a farm and we had animals and we had a big garden. And so we did all the gardening and the preserving and the all of that sort of thing. Um, and in those days, it, it was just called gardening because everything was organic because there wasn't any fertilizer yeah. yet. So it was just gardening. And so that's what, that's the kind of gardening that I grew up with. Um, my dad, my dad's family was, um, very poor when, uh, during the depression, they had some really, really times where they really struggled. And there were times when they really didn't have much in the way of food. So Part of what my dad and his brothers and sisters did was they got sent out into the swamp to find what they could find, um, be it, you know, uh, you know, watercress or other wild plants or nuts and seeds and things like that. And they would bring it back. And that's what my grandma would make for dinner. And so my dad taught me my first wild plants. And it really didn't seem like a big deal to me then. Um, but... Uh, as I grew up, you know, as you do, you sort of move to the city. And uh, I was uh, an actor and singer, professional actor and singer. And for about 10 years, I did that. And um, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time. And then I got a little bit more into writing. And then I sort of moved more into the corporate world of copywriting and, and editing and proofreading and all of that sort of thing, and was living in the city. I'd lived in Toronto, and I'd lived in Calgary, and I'd lived in Chicago. And I was getting um, progressively less happy. I mean, I enjoyed the city, enjoyed all the city had to offer, but there was something inside of me that was just really struggling with the constant sound and I think is is a lot of what it was the constant sound um, that is the background noise of the city and speaking of constant sound <laughs> on cue there's the phone um, the uh, so we um, we were up uh, it ended up in 2004 um, I was in a really bad car accident and um, we had moved from downtown Chicago, uh, my ex-husband and I, we had moved from downtown Chicago to the um, suburbs. We were up in Evanston. And uh, that was sort of a compromise because I wanted to move out of the city 
and my husband at the time didn't. He wanted to stay in the city. And so that was sort of our compromise. We moved to the suburbs. And, uh, but then I ended up being in this really bad car accident. And it was one of those situations where it kind of, you kind of reevaluate your life and go, wow, you know, if that would have been it, that would have sucked because I'm, I'm really, if I'm really honest, I'm really unhappy right now. So, um, I went back and uh, I had um, some trauma from the accident and had to go through, you know, take some time off and sort of get my head back together. And I found out um, that there were places that you could go to. I, I was out in Utah and a friend was showing me this sort of underground lake in this, in this cave. It was really cool in the Canyonlands in Utah, um, just north of the Grand Canyon. In, um, and we came across this, uh, we came across this, this spot in the sand where it, it looked like a mountain lion had been chasing down some deer. And I was like, oh man, look at this. This is so cool. And I just, I was like, oh, I wish I could Aragorn these tracks, uh-huh. you know, and just be able to know exactly what had happened. And so she said, well, you should go learn. Why not go learn? And I was like, well, where, where would you go? And, but I found out about uh, tracker school and was like, wow, I didn't even know that there were places, there were people who still did this kind of thing, let alone places I could go to still learn it. And so I ended up going to a, um, a week-long class out in California, and that's where Eddie and I met. He was an instructor there. That's where we met for the first time. And I was, that was it. I was hooked. I was like, yep, nope, I, this is what I'm meant to do now. And so my um, uh, I went back to Chicago and, and I was like, okay, this is what I need to do. And my husband was like, well, I just want to live in the city. And, and it, it, you know, we ended up parting ways and, um, that was, uh, um, that was difficult, but it was important for both of us. And we, I ended up, um, spending the next year just sort of stumbling around trying to figure all this stuff out on my own. And then I ended up doing an internship and then getting hired on at a school just in an administrative capacity, not as an instructor, but it kept me around it all the time. And it was um, really kind of frustrating um, because the environment wasn't super conducive to asking questions you know you were sort of expected to know stuff um not be learning it right because I was on staff I wasn't supposed to be asking questions I was supposed to know all this stuff so in some ways I I got to watch a lot though and um then uh after a while after Eddie and I got together it was that was probably the biggest and most important lesson that I learned from him was how to not ask questions um, because, uh, when you ask a question, how does it go? People ask questions with the intent of replying, not the intent of understanding, right? So when we ask a question and someone answers us, we're already working on our reply. We're not really listening and understanding and taking in what they have to say. But I spent, so I spent most of my time watching and trying to figure it out and then if I asked a question I knew it had to be a good one and um yeah I did a lot of failing over the next several years a lot of messing up um but that informed my abilities to do these skills in a tremendous tremendous way there's this way of learning that I think is a little bit different from how we perceive education now, and it's observation-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some examples in my personal life, uh, taking martial arts, for mm-hmm. example, uh, in a class where things really weren't explained, but the idea was to sort of mirror the teacher, and eventually things sort of felt right because there's something about your visual sense and your sense of your mm-hmm. body that confirms mm-hmm. when you finally have it and feels <laughs> awkward when you don't. And I actually really appreciate that way of learning, especially Mm. when it's with somebody who 
if you can be really observant of their skills, you can really get it at maybe a deeper level than the typical education process of here's a fact, here's another fact, here's mm. another fact, as if that somehow translates into embodied experience yeah. or a skill. Yeah. So I think I understand some of what you're saying there. And it's one of the things I appreciate about coming to classes here is things are contextualized and they're explained. And then there's also a very active component where you can see something being done or you could be making it and have it be a process. Right. So. It has to be hands-on. Right? Yeah. If, 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 if you're just watching something, you're not, you're not learning it. You have to watch and then you have to do. And that's where a lot of, um, you know, the, the YouTube culture kind of falls down. Uh-huh. Is that people do a lot of watching, and yeah. so they watch 20 different people do a bow drill fire, and so they think that they can do it. Right? No problem. <laughs> <laughs> easy peasy. No more. Yeah. But it, it, they miss that component of actually going out and doing and failing, because you're probably going to fail a lot. But that's how we learn. Yeah. And, and uh, that hands-on aspect, um, people, you know, a lot of times they expect something to be perfect the first time they do it. And that's just not, generally speaking, that's just not how it works. So, One of the things that I picked up through the little bit of learning that I've done around tracking is this idea of kind of with a capital A awareness <laughs> as this like real kind of like ethical underpinning for life like I, I don't know where to put it it's not in the ten commandments but it's it's this i feel like it's this really foundational value or ethic that i that i picked up through that that it wasn't really in my vocabulary or in my perception before and now it informs a lot of the way that i think about you know daily life and the natural world and so on yeah well, awareness is the only skill that's it like when you when you dig down deep and you go through everything, awareness is the only skill. If you want to track, you have to be able to be aware of the subtle differences between this leaf and that leaf, or this grain of sand and that grain of sand. If you want to identify plants, you have to be aware of the differences in you know, the, the fact that uh, this stalk is slightly uh, hairy and this stalk is smooth, or this stalk is round and this one has edges or is square, and this leaf is this color of deep green and this leaf is, is light green. And you know any of these things that you want to do awareness is the ultimate skill. If you're flint napping, you have to be able to be aware of the exact point that you're hitting the rock. If you're making a basket, you have to be aware of the base of the the base of your basket informs the the rest of it, right? You have to be aware of where the pieces are joining together, of the types of materials that you're using. It, everything, it all is awareness. It's the only skill. I don't know how explicit this is in practical primitives mission statement or your personal mission statement, but I imagine that you're taking a lot of people who are maybe starting out with a high level of nature disconnection yeah. <laughs> and, and through these various skills, possibly bringing them somewhere else. Uh, that's our, our hope. That's our, our goal. Um, we had a, uh, uh, for several years, we had a group of guys who came out. They originally came out for a private workshop and it was a um, bachelor party. This was their bachelor uh -huh. party. So they came out for a weekend and we did a bunch of stuff out in the woods. And it was a little bit more, you know, casual than a lot of them, that a lot of the workshops we do. But it was a lot of fun. They were a great group of guys. And they were all lawyers, accountants, actuaries, things like that from Manhattan. So their connection with the natural world was not great <laughs> uh -huh. and to the point where you know eddie told the one guy to go get an oak leaf because we were doing tinder bundles this was the second time they came out we were doing tinder bundles and and uh their pine needles and everything were all falling to pieces they couldn't get their tinder bundle to hold together so eddie was like well go find a big oak leaf and just put everything in the and he was like oh okay what's an oak leaf look like and um, Eddie just kind of, you know, kind of laughed, the kind of thought it was a joke. And mm -hmm. then somebody else asked him a question. So he turned and the guy came over to me and he said, Eddie told me I have to get an oak leaf. What's an oak leaf looks like? And I was like, 
oh, he's serious. Okay, well, let's go over here, and this is what an oak leaf looks like. Oh, okay, here's an oak leaf. Here's a nice big oak leaf. There you go. Okay, great, thanks. Then I thought, wow, that, you know, imagine living in a world where you don't know what an oak leaf looks like. And then a couple minutes later, the next guy came over, and he said, he told me to come and get an oak leaf. He told me you could find tell me what an oak leaf looks like. What's an oak leaf look like? And I was like, wow, it's not just one. And then yeah. the third guy came over. What's an oak leaf look like? And then I showed him, and he's like, well, how do you know that that's an oak leaf and not like a maple leaf or something? And I was right. like, well, because this is what a maple leaf looks like, and this is what an oak leaf looks like, and they don't look see how different they are. And he's like, wow, that's amazing that you just know that. And so we really have to strive to remember that we're always meeting people at the level that they're at, right? We, not everybody lives in the middle of the woods and is used to having bear walking through the yard and can track foxes and, you know, is watching the deer rubs and all of those kinds of things. That's not the majority of people's worlds anymore. It used to be not that long ago. That used to be the majority of people's worlds, but now the majority of people live in the city and the level of disconnect with the natural world and the world around us is really, really high. And I think it shows in the levels of, um, you know, depression and anxiety and frustration and disconnection and um, all of that. I think it really, I think that our, our disconnection from the natural world is, is a part of that. So we talked a bit about acorns. Are there other plants that figure in your more or less everyday life or things that you've been enjoying this season or lean heavily on? Um, yeah. It doesn't <laughs> have to be necessarily just wild plants, but, you know, edible, medicinal things that have kind of come into your life through primitive skills, what have you? Well, one of my, um, two, two of our, our favorites that we use quite regularly that we have growing a ton are stinging nettle and lamb's quarters. And um, we use those a lot. And uh, stinging nettle has always been a part of my life. Um, we have had a very, uh, let's say, uh, angry relationship, Stinging Nettle and I. Stinging Nettle has always been very angry with me. It, uh, I react very badly. My skin reacts very badly to Stinging Nettle. So I've been working very hard on, you know, improving my relationship with Stinging Nettle so that every time I touch it, I don't have a, doesn't feel like a lit cigarette is a touch to my skin for about three days. Wow. So, because on the farm, we have Stinging Nettle everywhere and it grows like six feet tall. Nice. And nice so, soils. yeah, <laughs> but um, not great when you're in shorts as a kid coming in all the time. Ouch. Yeah. So, but we have it growing here and, and we use it a lot um, for food and for tea and for medicine and lamb's quarters. We just let them grow. I feel, we feel terrible about pulling them out, um, but we can't let our gardens be overgrown by nothing but lamb's quarters. <laughs> a lot of times the best thing in our vegetable garden ends up being the lamb's quarters yeah. and the amaranth. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. The other crops might fail. <laughs> uh, they're kind of like puny <laughs> domesticates and they're very demanding and uh, the weather changes and all of a sudden they crap out. Yeah. It's like, oh, good. The lamb's quarters and the amaranth. Plenty of lamb's quarters and plenty of amaranth. And these plants are so nutrient dense. Mm-hmm. You know, being kind of following some of the discussions and agriculture about you know what's the next big thing after organic and so on in terms of improving the quality and health of our food supply and human health and people are talking a lot about nutrient density Mm -hmm. like you know being able to walk up to a carrot in a supermarket with a spectrometer and decide whether you want to buy that carrot or the other oh, carrot. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they're going to analyze all the secondary metabolites and, you know, what whether that carrot is just a bunch of, you know, water and water fertilizer and yeah. <laughs> or whether it actually has flavor, which, you know, we do have our own chemical laboratories for that. Yeah. But I guess you can't go gnawing everything in a supermarket. <laughs> and meanwhile, like a lot of these wild plants and weeds are off the charts yeah. compared to the domestic. Yeah, kids. tremendously off the charts. And lamb's quarters is one of those. We used to grow... Um, spinach, yeah. uh, but we just gave it up. We yeah, were just like, bother? it's so pointless to grow spinach. And the taste is really similar. Yeah, it is. The use and taste. Um, yeah. But I mean, spinach is so hard to grow, and at the first sign of heat, it just bolts, and yep. it's just such a pain. Yep. And so, whereas lamb's quarters, like you said, you can't you can't get rid of it. I mean, it just grows like crazy, 
and it's just as it's way better for you than spinach and the taste is very similar and um so yeah we amaranth and spinach and stinging nettle are three of our our mainstay food crops and um between that and uh elderberry is another Mm, big one that we we are huge fans of elderberry both for food and for medicine, but I mean, elderberry gets us through the winter. We use elderberry and elderflower for all kinds of things. It's just such a powerful plant. It's just pretty incredible. Yeah, I remember once when our kid Baron was, I don't know, six months old or so, he had a fever and he was all kind of bunched up and red and none of us were sleeping. Mm-hmm. And elderflower has this reputation as being a really gentle mm-hmm. fever reducer. Mm-hmm. I remember just spooning him, you know, because like, oh, it's our first baby and you, you don't want to mess anything <laughs> up. Just spooning him this little bit of elderflower. <laughs> and then we were all able to sleep. You know, it just took the edge off. It yeah. took the sort of hot, bunched up tension off. Aww. And so I'm still grateful to elderflower for that. Well, it's it's funny because elderberry. My mom had a um, a uh, a bed and breakfast at the farm. She still lives on the farm where we grew up, and it was called Elderberry Lane. Oh wow! Because we have elderberries growing all along the fences along the edge of the field, and uh, so we always had to mm. go and when we were kids, we'd pick the elderberries and you have to pick all the tiny little berries off yep. and the annoying tiny little stems <laughs> yeah. and it was such a thing that I hated picking the elderberries but uh, now I mean mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite things I look forward to the elderberries every year we've got our elderberry bushes out there and you know the the huge beautiful flowers that have the amazing scent and we make elderberry jelly in the in the springs and we dry the elderflower or sorry elderflower jelly um, from the elderflowers, and then we dry the the elderflowers and make um, tinctures with them, and then the berries come out. And I mean, it's a fantastic plant. There's a, a reason why elder is, uh, you know, in a lot of lore. You know, a lot of the old stories and elder wands and elder yeah. staffs, and it's a really, really great, powerful plant. I feel like a lot of times we approach conservation through this really scientific mindset of statistics about things disappearing and different lists and this kind of idea that the best thing a person can do is kind of walking around taking photos but not having any other impacts and then I think about the kind of personal connection and gratitude that I have for a plant like elderberry Mm -hmm. after it helps me when I'm sick Mm -hmm. and that just seems so much more human and so much more compelling than facts and statistics yeah. and doomsday scenarios and so on. Yeah. Well, and and I think that we're only just beginning to come back to the type of relationship that uh, with plants that, you know, our ancestors used to have because it's a whole other kingdom. Right? We're the animal kingdom, and that's the plant kingdom. And it has its all its own set of rules, its own set of um, you know, communication, its mm-hmm. own, uh, you know, but it's a whole other kingdom, and it communicates differently than we do. But I've had more than one experience where you know, the plants are saying, look, here I am, I can help. Yep. Right? <laughs> and uh, the first time that happened to me, it really impacted me, and it got me really thinking about plants in a completely different way. Because um, I had this cough that I just couldn't get rid of. We had been on a trip to California. <laughs> I know you know nothing about that. Oh, yeah, I'm just looking away because I've had this <laughs> cough for about a month, and I've tried a lot of things. We came back from California, and I just had this crud. Like it, it was awful, and it kept me up at night, and nothing was touching it. And um, I had this walk that I took the dogs on every day. And uh, we went on the same path every day, right? So it's not like I was walking down a new path. But I had just been thinking that morning, I was like, oh, man, I just wish I could find something, anything that would help me get rid of this stupid cough. And that day we were walking along the path and I noticed these flowers. And it was this whole big, and they were in full bloom, so it's not as though they had just all bloomed since yesterday, mm-hmm. right? They'd been there for a while, but it was, uh, this was the first time I ever really noticed them. 
And so I came back and I was like, oh man, there's these flowers there and I don't know what they are. And he's like, well, when you go tomorrow, take the field guide and look them up. So I did. And I discovered that it was oxeye daisy. And when I did some research on oxeye daisy, one of the things that oxeye daisy is good for is easing coughs. Hmm. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So imagine that. So I went out there and I got some oxide daisy and I started making tea and doing the stuff and yeah, it eased my cough and helped me through and I was like, oh well, you know, we we expect everything to communicate to us the way that we communicate to each other. Yes. And it's you know I don't understand why we think that when we're dealing with a completely different kingdom. So plants are amazing. Some people do say that, you know, the plants are talking to them in English or whatever, and I have no judgment one way or another. Yeah. It doesn't happen to me that way. The way that we perceive. But yeah. we are one half of the communication equation. Right. And so I, I do feel comfortable talking to or at the plants in English. I don't necessarily expect them to turn around and be like, hey, what's up, Jared? <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? But, you know, um, I remember... Maybe last fall, I was harvesting some spice bush for tea, or I guess it must have been for tea. And uh, I kind of have a habit of if I'm going to go harvest something, I'll I'll say a couple words, just sort of like, mm -hmm. "Hey, I'm here. I'm going to harvest you, but I'll I'll try not to be a total Gratitude f up about it." And, and yeah. you know, thanks. And and I didn't do that. And I kind of leaned into the spice bush with my clippers, and a branch poked me in the eye. <laughs> I was like, well, there's a really good pragmatic reason for saying your kind of gratitude first because you'll stop and you'll pay attention and you won't just get your eyeball jabbed. Yeah. So multi it works. That communication that. can work on many different <laughs> levels. Duh. Yeah. And we found when we first moved here to this property like nine years ago, there was a lot of things that weren't here. And we had like no mushrooms and none mm -hmm. you know there was a lot of plants that we didn't have here yeah. and so every year we'd just be like oh you know i wish we had this i wish we had that you know sort of and every year more and more of the things that we wanted would just show up they would pop up and now we've got all kinds of mushrooms we've got our stinging nettle we've got yarrow we've got you know the um you know all of these different things just sort of came that weren't here when we moved here and slowly they all just moved in because you know they knew they were wanted and and it was good habitat for them and and um yeah if only the multiflora rose would move out <laughs> you're not <laughs> wanted <laughs> go away I'm speaking to you in english you're not wanted <laughs> instead i just we were out one time stephanie eddie's daughter stephanie and i we were out cutting some multiflora rose mm -hmm. and i was i was telling her i was like this stuff is sentient just watch I said, the more we cut it, it's going to come after us. And uh, she was, right. and so we were, you know, we were cutting it back and cutting it back. And she was like, holy crap, look at it. And like the one branch was coming down <laughs> closer and closer. Uh -huh. And it like grabbed her hat off of her head, like until yeah. it grabbed her hat. I was like, see, I've it's coming to had get many me. times where I'll snag both legs, but kind of recurved in opposite directions. Yeah. And you try to walk and you just... <laughs> Every step you take, you're ripping the other leg and stumbling around. It's really good at that. Yeah. It's like, just amazing. leave me alone. I'm not bothering you. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the other, uh, doesn't have to be plant world, non-plant world skills that you feel really drawn to? Oh, fire. Yeah. Yeah, fire is my Yeah, tell one. me about fire. Yeah. I've been a... Not that I'm asking you a question or anything, pyromaniac. let's talk about my, fire. My, I've, been, <laughs> I've been a pyromaniac my whole life. I love to watch things burn. I love to whether it's birthday candles or matches or fires, like campfires or whatever, yeah. Fire has been a big part of my life since I was a kid, so it's my probably my biggest passion. We've come to some fires here mm -hmm. where you use it as a focal point for gathering people together mm -hmm. and uh, expressing hopes about life and uh, in, in a somewhat ritual sense. Mm -hmm. Is that something you've always felt comfortable doing or is that a new? No, that's a totally new thing. Yeah, yeah very much. That's a very much a new thing. I, I never felt, um, I don't know, good enough or holy enough or, yeah. you know, shaman enough yeah. to, to do those kinds of things. But um, 
then one year I was just like, you know, it'd be really nice to do something for the solstice. And so for the winter solstice, I think you guys were here for that very first one that we did. And um, that was just sort of the beginning of it. And I really enjoy it. And I think that uh, a lot of people seem to really enjoy and appreciate the that for us. Um, and see, fire is another thing where it communicates to you, right? It communicates in a totally different way. Fire is a whole nother being. And it tells you through its method of communication exactly what it needs. Does it need more oxygen? Does it need more fuel? Does it need more, you know, what does what does it need? And and you can communicate back and forth with fire to produce the bigger, smaller, better, you know, put it out, make it, make it start. All of those things are all just a communication with fire. I've definitely been to one or two kind of new agey things that um, make me feel very, nervous and skin crawly behind the uh, <laughs> calm exterior but i always feel very grounded when you're doing a sort of solstice ritual here oh, it doesn't feel put on or um sometimes you really feel like somebody's just appropriating something that sounded cool from somewhere and yeah. they can't really they can't really wear it right i really enjoy coming here what are some of the other aspects of the fire skill set and other aspects that you're drawn to or find fascinating or challenging. I love flames. <laughs> I just love watching the yeah. flames. Like to me, that's the, it's such a, it's such this cool thing that exists, you know, yeah. that when something burns, there's all these colors and the dancing and the, the colors that you can see when you really look in fire, that you're just like, greens and blues and purples and bright yellows and different woods create different colors and and it's just a beautiful and fascinating thing and so that's i just love to like caveman tv we yeah, call it yeah right. we have a wood stove and we don't have a tv and yeah. we're often joking that we're you know, gonna go sit in front of the television and there's just something about it that draws people together yeah right people sit around the fire and they talk and they laugh and they play music and they tell stories and it's just a, a place of gathering and fellowship and you know kindred spirits and and friendship and i think that it's always been that way fire is our friend fire is our protector fire is life you know we we through fire we we have our we have protection from predators we have um food we through through cooking food our brains grew bigger and we became you know part of what we are today is through fire um we boil our water we cook our food um we keep warm fire is shelter fire is water fire is food fire is life without it we try and think of anything anything in this in this room that was not somehow yeah. touched by fire yeah and you it's you know and i was just recently talking to some friends about their local zoning that was prohibiting outdoor fires oh. and i just thought and, you know, I guess I say this often and I want to be too political, but um, this is supposed to be a free country. And yeah. this is like one of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be human, right? It's yeah. off, It's one of the things that people most regularly say is, uh, you know, people are always at trying to say, you know, what sets humans apart from other animals or how are we different? And in some ways it's a stupid discussion. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to return to one thing that's really elemental there, it's it's fire. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that Our, you're just not allowed to have a fire. Yeah. I think sometimes we are, our entertainment and our life fundamentals are so outsourced and we don't really say just, no, it's a Friday evening, we're going to have a fire and yeah. a bunch of friends are going to come over and we're all going to play music or yeah. crack acorns or whatever. And I feel without fire, it's that much harder to try to build that community, inborn, mm -hmm. entertaining, gathering skills. So many of the skills rotate around fire. Around too. fire, yeah. I have to free the fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's also a very misunderstood. Um, fire is very misunderstood. And uh, in a lot of ways, fire is feared, right? Because sure. what we don't understand, you know, we seek to destroy, right? What is it? What we don't talk to, we don't know. What we don't know, we fear. What we fear, we destroy. 
And when people are unable to have that conversation with fire, to understand fire, then they become afraid of it. Oh, the fire is going to, um, you know, the sparks are going to blow over onto the neighbor's deck and set right. their whole house on fire. Well, that's not really how fire works. But uh, <laughs> sometimes it's as if only it was that easy yeah, to set fire exactly. when you're struggling with a bow drill or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, there's a lot of fear surrounding fire because it is very dangerous. Sure. You know, fire Absolutely. is, uh, you know, fire out of control. Just look at California yeah. right now. It's, it's when fire is, um, unleashed, it's a, it can be a very dangerous thing. But if people just had more experience with fire and more understanding of fire, they would know that it's, it's very easy to, have a good relationship with a fire in your backyard. And when you have that understanding, you know that on a really super dry day where it's been no rain or humidity and, you know, zero humidity and no rain and the winds have kicked up, you don't build a fire that day. That's practical too. <laughs> that's, <it's, laughs> yeah. Right. But it's, that's all part of the understanding of this, of fire, of that relationship with fire, you know, when to, and when not to. And it's kind of sad that we now live in a world where people can't be trusted to be able to, we're so disconnected that, you know, people can't be trusted to be able to make those decisions and have that understanding on their own that it has to be legislated. Like, you know, so much stuff now. Was it you who was telling me you were rereading the Richard Lua yeah. book? Yeah. Yeah. Last Child in the Woods. Yeah. It's so prophetic. It's just remarkable. When I read it for the first time 15 years ago, it was interesting reading it again 15 years later and realizing that the children that he's talking about uh, in the book are now in their... 20s and 30s and early 40s yeah. and it's it's it just kind of blew my mind <laughs> it still does I look it has allowed me to look at um that sort of whole generation in a different light you know in a more almost compassionate mm -hmm. light because it's that lack of I was just reading something the other day where um, talking about how uh, Generation X, you know, we grew up, we're the sandwich generation, you know, we've got the huge generation of baby boomers on one side and the huge generation of the millennials on the other side and we're kind of stuck in the middle, but we're the last generation that had that sort of chaotic, just crazy freedom as kids. Yeah. Uh, that, um, you know, those that came after us will never know that sort of, you know, bye mom, see you later, we'll be back tomorrow kind of a freedom where we just headed back into the hills and camped overnight and nobody knew exactly where we were and what we were, or what we were doing and we just came back the next day before dark. And we were the last analog generation too. Yeah. We're less people with, uh, you know, the telephone where you yeah. turned <laughs> right. to dial or the television where you turned a you dial turned and the you, dial. Had a, you had a UHF knob, whatever that was supposed and you to had do. To, whoever was the youngest had to stand there and hold the antenna. That was, <laughs> Is that how it worked in your yes, family? Yes, it was. <laughs> to get hockey out of I, Buffalo, I had to I stand guess there. I was the oldest sibling, so maybe I just <laughs> didn't pay attention to that aspect. But and and the last generation for whom books were a huge part of our growing up, as opposed to you know tablets and yeah, you know all that kind of thing. I still can't really bring myself to read anything of length on a screen. No, I've tried the whole Kindle thing, and I just I don't know. There's just I can't. I don't mind reading articles. Yeah. But even then, um, if an article is too long, I just I can't read it on yeah. the screen. I just get bored. I don't know why I get bored reading on a screen when I can read for like six hours in a row in a book. That's true. I think I always feel the pull of other things while on the screen. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Or like there's this different pace that's set as, I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious what you're up to now. Either, you know, what are some new challenges or questions you're asking yourself or skills that you've been pursuing or, or new directions? Um, well, we're uh, beginning to 
look at taking practical primitive in, in new directions. We're moving, um, we're planning on moving out of New Jersey and we're going to be, um, we've spent the last 12 years doing workshops, in-person small group workshops every weekend, um, you know, 52 weeks a year, well, probably about 48 weeks a year. We take a couple of weekends off. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's a lot. And it's, we've, and we've sort of seen a change um, as, uh, as time has gone on in our students and in technology and, and things like that. And in ourselves, you know, we've been doing this for 12 years. We're 12 years older. Yeah. And um, so we're, we're sort of looking to transition practical primitive from an every weekend kind of a thing to we're going to be moving uh, a lot more of our stuff to online uh, courses mm-hmm. where the in-person element is more of an optional aspect of it and um, that uh, we do fewer times a year where we do workshops you know uh, many fewer workshops in the year and only doing things that we really enjoy (laughs) you know is to teach fire and we'll still teach flint napping we'll still teach you know some of the basketry stuff and and um, you know the gardening stuff, you know, like the th- acorn thing, the things that we really enjoy and do in our everyday life, and you know some of the other stuff that we only do because it's stuff that you know you're supposed to do as a primitive skills sure. school. And we're just gonna let those let let the younger people work on that, do those kinds of things now. It sounds like you paid your dues. Yeah, <laughs> you've earned it. Well, you know, you want to do different things in your fifties and sixties than you did in your thirties and forties. Sure. And uh, so, and we have had a hundred and I think it's 138 different workshops that, that we offer. Wow. And so I think, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Practical Primitive has been the broadest based primitive skills school in North America. Like we do everything. Um, and that's not to say we offer all those 138 workshops every year, but yeah, that's what we have 138 different workshops that we offer. And it's a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of supplies and a lot of props and a lot of stuff to uh, have on hand. So as we move, when we move and we downsize, we're going to be downsizing our, our workshops as well, probably down to, you know, 30 or 40 that we do, you know, maybe 20, 20 weekends a year instead and move a lot of our stuff to online and um, moving into, um, you know, some different projects, um, you know, maybe doing some more traveling and, and being able to ins- re-inspire ourselves, yeah. which is, um, you know, a big thing. After doing the same thing for 12 years, you know, you started to you kind of get stuck in a rut and, and you, and we've, had the opportunity these last couple of years to do a couple of events that we've never done before and meet some people that we didn't know before. And, um, it just, you know, it sort of gets you excited to meet new people and see how they do things and in their part of the world, what are the materials they use? And, and, you know, we'd like to be able to do a little bit more of that and then be able to share that with people too. A big part of the reason why I started the podcast is I was starting to feel that same sense of, all the things that I really wanted to be doing 10 years ago, it mm. kind of got in there yeah. and that's great. And then again, I was ready for new conversations and yeah. new ideas and new inspiration. Yeah. And I want to thank you for both this podcast conversation and also all the other inspiration that I've gotten here through your classes and also here through the kind of casual community gatherings that you host which I feel like are so lacking sometimes. Yeah. It just feels great to come up here. There's this great combination of, well, I can look on their shelves and see <laughs> all the cool projects. <laughs> and then we can sit and chat and, and you know, be friends and sit around a fire yeah. and make some good food. So thanks for today and thanks for all the other days. Oh, well, too. we always love having you guys over. It's, uh, it's, you know, community is a big part of what we do and it's always going to be a big part of what we do. Great. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Jared.